0: And welcome back to the Well Projects Leadership Exchange podcast. The Well Projects Leadership Exchange is a series connecting thought leaders in the HIV community to explore one another's work, activism, and personal experiences. This series brings together cis and trans women and others who uplift women's voices across the HIV community in dialogue. On today's episode, The Well Project's Community Advisory Board member and Black AIDS Institute's Senior HIV Testing Coordinator, Portia Dees, and WRI member, Dr. Gina Brown, talk about pregnancy and HIV and the ways that treatment and care have and continue to evolve. Hi everyone, my name's Portia Dees
1: and I am a CAB member, a community advisory board member for the Well Project, as well as I am the linkage to care coordinator for the Black AIDS Institute.
2: Um, I have seen you before there, I think. Yeah,
1: (laughs) I've uh, been working in the HIV direct services field and doing advocacy for about seven years now. And I'm super excited to do this leadership exchange with Dr. Brown. Um, And Dr. Brown, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure.
2: Thanks a lot, Portia. Um, And I'm excited. I knew I'd seen you before. (laughs) My name is Gina Brown. I'm a physician. I'm an OBGYN and I work for Gilead Sciences. I started out doing OB and doing HIV care for women from the beginning of the epidemic. I started out as a working with women who were substance using, we had a substance using women's clinic at Harlem Hospital Center that was started by Janet Mitchell who was very active and energetic, getting people to pay attention to women living with HIV. Um, And it very quickly morphed as the epidemic came along into a women's HIV clinic and that's how I got started. Um, And I've been working around women's issues with HIV since my, from the beginning of my career on, which was from the beginning of the epidemic on, I came out of residency right around the time that we started, just before we started seeing HIV in women. Um, and so I've been lucky enough, I think, to, I went and did a fellowship and the fellowship director was very involved in HIV research, um, the Women and Infants Transmission Study. And so I used to sub for him in the clinic that he ran, and then I just took over the clinic when I graduated. Awesome. <laughs> from And so it's been a really, Um, It's been exciting and interesting and gratifying to see this from the very beginning and kind of what incredible strides we've made. So I practiced, I worked at NIH for 10 years before coming to Gilead um, and was able to work on the issues around research, both in prevention, women and girls issues in particular, um, and then medical issues related to HIV and being able to do some really interesting things with bringing folks from the community together to hear from them. So it's been a like a, a, a fun way to see all the different parts of it in a gratifying way because I've met these amazing women along the way who have schooled me along the way. Um, awesome. And so here I am, I work in HIV prevention at Gilead. I'm a medical awesome. scientist.
1: Yeah, that's one of the reasons why, you know, when they brought this idea of doing a leadership exchange to us um, and they uh, they shared with us different people who we can interview, like, um, mm-hmm. so, you know, they, uh, yeah. I, I looked through all of our WIR, WRI members, sorry, <laughs> and our um, other CAP members as well as our partners, and when I read your bio, I was like, oh, yeah that's who I want to interview because of, you know, I was born HIV positive in 86. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, being someone who uh, acquired HIV through vertical transmission and also I'm 34 now and I feel like I'm getting old and I have baby fever so bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm super interested in um, having a baby Uh And so my baby being born free uh, from HIV. So the fact that you were an OBGYN and worked with women um, who, uh, you know, gave birth or worked with women with HIV and your background and everything, I was like, yeah, that's what stood out to me. And that's why I wanted to interview you.
2: (laughs) It is so Um, exciting for me to continue to meet young women, young men who were born before we kind of figured out this stuff right. and have done really well and they're healthy. And it's like an amazing example to folks that, yeah, you can live with this. And also you can have a baby who, and you can prevent that baby from being a baby born living with HIV. I mean, it's, we've come, it's it's funny because I don't know that everybody appreciates what it was like before. And then just how once it changed, it was like, fume was really exciting and like the the knowledge just grew exponentially
1: and it's interesting saying you know you you worked with women with substance abuse issues um, because that's exactly what my mom struggled with Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and uh, she didn't know she was positive until she had me and you know my aunt and uncle had to take legal guardianship of me because she wasn't in the You know, proper mindset, or, you know, she wasn't able to give me the care that I needed. So Uh thank God for my aunt and uncle. And I think if my mom wasn't going through what she was going through, that she would still be here today because I lost her to AIDS related illnesses in 2004. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, no, it's no worries. Um, But yeah, I think that, you know, she would still be here today if she wasn't going through all of that. Can you uh, kind of like share the process of, like when someone is, uh, has HIV and they're pregnant, um, can you kind of like share the process of what they would have to go through in order to have a baby um, without HIV?
2: So back in the beginning, all we had was AZT, which doesn't even get used as a treatment anymore. Um, It was the one drug that was available. And the study showed that if women took AZT while they were pregnant, then it prevented them from transmitting the virus to their infant. It broke it, it decreased it by two thirds. So of every hundred women, 66 plus did not pass HIV onto their baby. Okay. Um, And that was all we had for a long time. And so in the beginning, even before that, people were saying, how can you do this to women? How can you do this to their babies? How can you make them take this terrible medication? And then they, the data came and it was like, oh, and so for a while we had just that. And, the, but we were almost lagging behind in terms of the excitement of treating women for their disease itself. So right. we got more medications and people were saying, well, you can't, you don't want to harm the baby. We don't know anything about this. And it for those of us in OB who did this was that benefits risk, which is if mom gets sick, that baby is not going to be a healthy baby or may end up born early, or we don't know what will happen. So there was a lot of struggle to see women as more than just a vessel for having a baby that had to be kept healthy, but we needed to keep them healthy. And I think um, when I read one of your questions, it was about sort of this concept of treatment as prevention. (laughs) that very quickly morphed as we got like the medicines ramped up triple drugs they called the cocktail became the norm and there were a group of folks who really fought hard for how can you take a woman and not have her get you know keep her hiv managed so that you'd only use azt to treat her so because that's what we knew would work for the baby and so Again, data got collected to realize that triple drugs really did keep mom healthy, but also markedly decreased the rate of HIV transmission in their babies.
1: Right, and the, the baby has to take um, the AZT afterwards too, right?
2: So that, in the beginning, the baby took takes AZT for six weeks after. And then as we got more medications, um, there's still groups who take just AZT. There are also groups that will take multiple medications. It all depends. And it's for the six weeks um afterward to cover what exposures they may have from birth but the other thing we learned and i learned it a patient came in and sat down in my office one day on a monday and said hey listen i heard on the news that if i if i have a cesarean section my baby won't get hiv and this was before we knew about viral loads and all Um, of that stuff and so There, well, it was when we were first knowing about about viral loads and about um, if a mom, what they looked at the data, and if mom had a viral load over a thousand, then her risk of passing the virus onto the baby was higher, and if it was less than a thousand, then the risk was very low. So for moms who were not fully suppressed, which was an interesting concept back then, um, they would get cesarean sections if they wanted, and that would also decrease the risk of the baby getting the virus going through the vagina right so um it just it it's like the it's almost like what we're seeing with covid where the knowledge is snowballing only in those years it was snowballing over years time as opposed to snowballing over weeks to months time where we are now. and it really set the basis for a lot of the science that we're doing now around covid Um, so it was it was exciting because you're like oh my goodness, we can work with women and they can have an opportunity to, to have children and live normal lives if right. we can keep their virus undetectable, which is where we are now. So if mom is undetectable, her risk of passing the virus to the baby is incredibly low. And wow. so and as undetectable used to be less than 200, and then it was less than like 50, and then it was less than 40. And now it's you know you can get really low in terms of figuring out what's an undetectable viral load
1: yeah so for that progression yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah and so for you if if your viral load is undetectable meaning you're healthy you've taken your medication and you you stay on your meds then your risk of trans, of transmitting the virus in childbirth to your baby is virtually non-existent i mean it's very 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 low
1: yeah i i now i know that um and that's kind of why i wanted to you to explain that, you know, for others to hear that in this uh, conversation. So thank you for doing that. And then, yeah, what you were referring to in one of my questions that um, I'm going to skip over now, but yeah, I I wanted to also uh, highlight that, um, you know, the advances in medical, in treatment and research And the fact that uh, U equals U is a fact (laughs) now, we kind of already like seen that prior to it was, you know, to to Mm -hmm. the fact that it was proven um, in this whole vertical transmission or, you know, women giving birth to uh, HIV negative babies. We kind of already knew that before U equals U was proven. So, yeah, I'm glad that you uh, highlighted that um we we were seeing this beforehand um, um feel free to also ask me any questions uh i have about four more questions that i want to ask you but okay. feel free to also ask me uh any questions you would like you said uh, you just started
2: realizing that yeah you could go ahead and have a baby did you get did you ever feel like
1: you got pressure to not have a baby before uh so growing up um I had my first sit down uh, where someone told me I had HIV. Uh, I was in a, in the sixth grade, and it okay. was my social worker at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Um, there were How that, in, right. <laughs> so in eighty six, when I was born, there were no HIV medical specialists in my area. I'm from San Bernardino, California. So Uh I had to be transferred all the way to children's hospital. And I mean, it was an awesome hospital. Um, The way that my social worker, uh, she just pretty much sat down and told me I have, I have HIV, which I heard that word before. I heard my doctors and my parents and stuff talking about it. I just didn't know what it was. Uh And then she told me about you know, she explained to me what HIV was and told me how it's transmitted. But it was very, it was from a very like sex negative approach. And so she didn't directly say, oh, you can't have sex or you can't have babies. But like the way in which she taught it and how it was spread, I assumed like, okay, well, I can't have sex then, or at least not without protection, or I wouldn't be able to have <laughs> a baby, you know, like she didn't talk about treatment and how the treatment works. She just talked about how the virus was spread. Um, That's a lot so, for a sixth grader. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and even when I learned about it in sex education in in middle school, it was the same thing. Like, you know, like, So I kind of just always went through life feeling like I can't move like everybody else can. (laughs) So, or I can't do some of the stuff like everybody else could. Mm -hmm. Um, But now I know better. (laughs) How did, when did that start to change for you? Um, that started to change when I finally got involved and I started, um, I, after I transitioned out of pediatric HIV medical care, which was when I was 21, I moved into, yeah, Wow. <laughs> um, I transitioned into adult HIV care and I kind of fell out of care in that process because it was a lot different. But then yep. when I finally came back and I started volunteering, I went to AIDS Healthcare Foundation. Um, I started volunteering and I started becoming like a uh, mobilizer and then I got my first job in the field awesome. um, that's when I started learning about uh, you know meeting other people other women who had been living with HIV and who had had babies themselves um, mm-hmm. I started learning about everything <laughs> so I was older I was in my 20s like 23 24 which is kind of sad but yeah <laughs> I mean late
2: <laughs> well, but no, but people, the, that attitude hasn't completely gone away. Right. Um, I can remember practicing and I was getting a call from, there was an adult infectious disease provider and she called up and started yelling at me because one of my patients was pregnant. And I'm like, uh, I didn't do it. <laughs> <You> know. <laughs> but her attitude was how, almost like a, how dare they? And I think that has changed a lot among providers. I mean, it's, people have, yeah, there's just, I think a lot of that has changed, although probably not completely. Right, Um, right, right. And it was, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of information, but even the providers didn't seem to always have it. And even some of the HIV providers. And so it's a shame, but quite understandable that you may not have gotten the right information until you were further along. And even then, people still have judgment about it. Like, if there's any possibility, you shouldn't be having children, which is wrong.
1: Yeah. Um, So how did you get started in your career? Did you always know you wanted to be an OBGYN or, you know, work in the, do HIV work? Um, Not at all. Um, I In
2: medical school, I thought I was going to be a pediatrician or a pediatric psychiatrist. And then I did... I went to a school that gave you patient interaction from the very beginning. It's called Case Western. And you had a pregnant woman that you followed. They wanted you to learn about primary care. And I love that these people knew their patients from having babies, but they also knew them over the years of their lives as as they grow older. And so I like that primary care part of it, but I also like the surgery part of it. And then when I did, you do these rotations where you spend six to eight weeks doing something. So when I did OB, I remember thinking, God, I'm exhausted, but I really love this stuff. So that's how I got there. Um, And I, I, this is something I think it's important for people who look like us. I didn't know much about doctors when I was in high school. You know, Um, it's not like I spent much time at them or anything. I went to a summer program between high school and college, and it was for then called minority students. So it was Black and Latin students. It was in New York City. It was called PrEP. and Kids who wanted to go to medical school were already admitted to college, and that's how we spent that summer. And in addition to schoolwork, they had Black doctors come and talk to us, Black and Latin doctors come and talk to us. So for me, for the first time, I saw people who looked like me doing something that I thought I wanted to do. So I felt like I had a better sense of what this means in terms of having a life and that there are people who look like me that can do this. And so... I think it's important for all of us, for anything we do for a living, to think about people coming from coming behind us, you know the next generations of folks, that they need to see people who are outreach workers, they need to see people who are social workers, they need to see doctors, they need to see lawyers who look like them to know that this is a job you can
1: do so right, awesome. Um, and then you kind of mentioned <laughs> your uh, your career path, and so um can you talk a little bit about, you know, how each piece, you know, the OBG your OBGYN years and then your research years at NIH and then where you are now, how that um, has influenced the way you approach your work with women in HIV? Okay, I'm gonna take you a half a step back though. Um,
2: okay. So neither of my parents went to college. Okay. My mother probably didn't go to, she might've gone through eighth grade. And um, when she was, when I was a kid, she took her GED to get a high school degree. And then there were all these programs opening up cause there was a nursing shortage and she went to nursing school. And I think that had a tremendous influence on me just in the concept of medicine, but also an influence on me about, you can do whatever you want, whatever you want to do, you can get it done. Cause she was three kids and a husband um, and working and cleaning people's houses to pay for nursing school and manage to get it done. Um, And I think we as a people need to appreciate what folks have to do to get it done. And that sometimes it's not easy and sometimes it's not lovingly laid out. But um, for me, I always knew I wanted to do do work that would take me in a community that was underserved I took Spanish in college, even though I came out of high school speaking French so that I could I knew I wanted to work on the East Coast of the inner city. Mm -hmm. And at the time that those were the people coming in who may not have had great access to healthcare, Um, And so that sort of, to me, defined the populations I wanted to work with. I never wanted to do a private practice. Um, I was lucky enough by doing the substance abusing women and doing women living with HIV before I started a fellowship that there weren't a lot of people who wanted to do that. And so a lot of the research was being done. So I got to be known as someone working within these research projects and working within policy. Um, <clears throat> I think I really benefited from the fact that not a lot of people wanted to do this. I have to be honest. And it was a group of folks I loved working with and it always combined because we do so little research policy and then the clinical part of working with women. Um, and so that, that those combinations of things that research policy and working with women clinically has been a big part of you know working with the New York State Department of Health AIDS Institute to build guidelines around women. Um, being one of the folks who was picked to do the first set of national guidelines only came around because there weren't a lot of folks doing it. You okay. know? Um, or giving talks at meetings and stuff because there weren't a whole lot of people doing it. Um, and so I, I think I was fortunate, but it was also something I took on. When I, um, my OB training was for high risk OB, women with medical problems other than just being pregnant, which is not really a medical problem, by the way. Um, <laughs> and so HIV was very much a part of that. Women who had diagnoses that made them sick. So I did that with you know women who had heart disease and women who had kidney disease, but HIV was also part of that. Um, And I was lucky to be able to take over a clinic that was built on a combo of research money and social services money and the clinical part. We used to say we kept it together with paper clips and, you know, um, plastic tape with all these different funding sources. So women were part of research programs, but they also got clinical care, even if they didn't want to be part of a research program. Um, I, from doing that, I got to serve on a number of NIH committees that determined what research needed to happen, particularly around women. Um, and that's kind of how I got there. They were building a prevention section at microbicide, or for microbicides, looking at prevention that women can use. And, um, I was on a committee that was looking at what's the kind of research that needs to be done, and then they started up this section and they called and said, "Hey, well, look, we're looking for someone who might be interested in this. If you know anybody, let us know." And I hung up the phone. I'm like, "I'm interested." <laughs> so I talked with someone there, and that's how I ended up there for ten years. And it was um, still a combo of figuring out what research needs to be done. So we weren't doing the research; we worked with. Community members, scientists, um, community members living with HIV, people who ran programs, um, clinicians to come together, kind of like WRI does, to come together and figure out what research needs to be done. for me, it was women and then in prevention, then ultimately in um, comorbidities, other illnesses that everybody has. Um, Yeah. And it's so it was still this policy and research policy and program development and the actual what are the questions that need to be answered. Um, And then I got to Gilead because it was an opportunity to do some of the clinician education to get people to Mm -hmm. do small projects that answer these questions. Um, I don't you were around for Essence Festival, right? Um, when, I didn't attend the Essence Festival, um, but when it but, got kind of built, well not built, but sort of that way to bring in this women and HIV issues. Yeah. And so we were able to do that through Gilead and then through the partnerships with the community folks with Black AIDS Institute that took a leadership role, Sister Love, <laughs> you know, and you make it an opportunity for to get to women you know women who are living with HIV women who are not living with HIV to provide education and so being able to do that sort of stuff was um it sort of all came it came along the way which is being able to get to the community get to providers get to researchers it's for me it's all sort of the same work but in different ways
1: yeah yeah I like how you uh how you laid that out in in throughout our conversation, we kind of like talked about how, you know, the education I received from my social worker at, at children's hospital. And then, you know, how providers sometimes still hold these, uh, stigmas or biases. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the fact that you are uh, now educating providers is awesome. And then the research part, that kind of like leads into my next question. Um, mm-hmm. As you know, we've seen over the years a lot of the times women aren't included in this mm-hmm. research as it pertains to, um, you know, the treatment and stuff for HIV prep, all that stuff. Um, do you see uh, research being more inclusive of women, women? living with HIV and verticals, and yeah, I'm saying women, but verticals are definitely not included in this research. Yeah. Do you see um, that being more inclusive now? And I think especially now since we have you in, in the role that you're in. Now. I think
2: they're growing. I mean, the efforts are growing more. I mean, you're right from the longest, you know, women were, if they had the capacity to get pregnant, they were kept out of all research studies, not just HIV. And by capacity, you mean like, you know, from teenage up to 44, we didn't have data. Um, And so there's um, the Office of Research on Women's Health at NIH put forth something like a booklet like this that talks about um, making sure, you know, you can't exclude women unless you have a reason. You know, and the reasons are like, I'm doing prostate cancer research. So women don't have prostates, they don't get prostate cancer, it's because it's a men's organ, That's that would be a reasonable reason, but simply because, oh, she might get pregnant, you've gotta be able to handle it. Um, and so that's, a, and that that's congressionally, I don't know if the word is mandated, but kind of built into kind of federal funding for research. Um, and then a lot of other places that don't use federal funds are recognizing, implementing, that you need to get research done in women if you're going to be, if that's half the population you're going to be treating with something. Um, The the folks from the WELL Project, Don Averett in particular, and some others were instrumental in getting a study called the GRACE study done Mm -hmm. that showed that, you know, if you set it up right, you can get women to enroll because people used to think, (laughs) oh, they won't enroll. They've got other stuff to do. Well, if you set it up right, you know, with them involved in how you set it up, it can happen and it did um and so i think there's a lot that brought a lot of notice to particularly women living with hiv and how you can have women living with and women at risk to participate in studies um i so i think it's coming along it's it's sometimes you have to remind folks and sometimes you have to remind them aggressively right <laughs> but, um and sometimes i think the community has to step up and say hey you know nothing about us without us right you, know, you gotta you can't build a process and build the medicine and do whatever if you're not going to study it in, in us and, and I, so I think I, we're getting there
1: yes that's one of the reasons why I love being a part of uh, the well project because mm-hmm. you know they do a lot of you know with the women's research the WRI and just you know, they do a lot of that work. So (laughs) I'm super Um, excited about that.
2: I have to say one of the things I've loved about being part of the WRI is that it brings such a group of people together from all different backgrounds and all different educations and all different life experiences. And some of the things the clinicians or the researchers may take for granted, the women living with HIV and the women at risk for HIV are like, I'm not interested in that. We, yeah. <laughs> we did a, a great session on cure and there were some women probably in their 40s and 50s who have been living with HIV for a long time. And they're like, so get this straight. I'm on a medication that works, that I'm fine with, and you want me to stop taking it to see if I'm cured? Right. You know, so it's, it makes folks think about how you need to involve the people who would benefit or take the risks of something in the conversation.
1: Right, You yes, that's is super important. Thank you for um, bringing that up.
0: <laughs> um,
2: Have you, um, when you think about having a child or just that you're 34 years old, how would you want the information? I mean, you've made an effort to be involved in this. How would you bring that to others coming along? And how would you want, the information both gotten or looked for, how would you want that to happen in an ideal world?
1: Great question. Um, first of all, this might be like just a long shot to like something difficult to ask for. Cause like we both mentioned, you know, like the stigma and the judgment, Um, like I would want that to be not there. like. Um, like, I wouldn't, I would want to feel like, okay, this is something that I can do, and that I'm allowed to do, like, as an HIV positive woman, I'm allowed to have sex, (laughs) I'm, my right, it's, it's not, it's a, what is it, it's a basic necessity, like, in life, yes, (laughs) like, and then having a baby is, like, we're, you know, we're supposed to procreate, like that's a natural thing. Like, and just because I'm positive doesn't mean that I can't do that. And even if, you know, we have all this information now that HIV is, you know, preventable, that a woman can have a baby who comes out HIV negative. But even if I do have a baby and the baby doesn't come out negative, so not so what, but like, that's okay too. Like I was born positive. I look at being positive differently than most people. Cause I've had it my whole entire life mm-hmm. and I turned out fine. Like, yeah, there were things I had to go through and you know, that I wouldn't have went through if I wasn't positive, but I think that's life. I think everybody has things that they go through and things that they struggle with, you know, like mm-hmm. I don't, trust me, that's the last thing I want to do is have a baby and my baby come out positive. Like that's my biggest, like, uh, you know, that's the generational curse that I want to break. That's my biggest like hope is to have my baby born free. But I don't want to have to feel that guilt and that shame for if, you know, that doesn't happen. You know, Um, I... I know the Well Project is doing a lot of research behind breastfeeding mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. while you're pregnant or uh, HIV positive women in breastfeeding. And so, like, you know, I just want things to be like less judgmental. Like we're able to breastfeed. We're able to do everything like just like every other woman is supposed to, is is able, is, is able, you know, like, um, so I just would want the be the information to be given and um, like a less judgmental way in a more like, uh, I don't know if sex positive is the right word, but yeah, you know, like uh, from like taking into consideration the wants and the needs of someone who is HIV positive, like, and not Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. saying, oh, okay, you can't breastfeed, you shouldn't be doing this, you should know, like, we can, and, you know, like, I would want, um, for different providers that work with, you know, OBGYNs and stuff that work with women who are HIV positive and want to have a baby, like, I would want that information somewhere where it's easily accessible because there's not a lot of OBGYNs that do work with people who mm-hmm. are HIV positive And then in a who are like, you know, who who look like us and who are not judgmental, <laughs> you know. Oh. Like, uh, so I would want that to be made available. Like, what are good OBGYNs to go to? Like, who won't judge you? Who won't, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, It's funny
2: because you, you, there are two things that I, um, that stuck with me when you're talking about the issues of stigma from the side that I work at, we often address stigma as though it's the patient's problem, as though a person is a patient. It's like you come at it with, and you've got to, you know, think better about yourself and whatever, as opposed to recognizing that stigma can be levied upon an individual by their providers potentially too. Mm -hmm. So it's gotta be a two-way street. Mm I mean, you've gotta work with the providers who are judgmental and may not even realize that they are. You know, an expression of your face, a sound of your voice, a way you get a message. Um, And the concept of sex positive really strikes home with me working in prevention. Because we always we ought we I shouldn't say we always it is often talked about as though, oh you've got to keep yourself from getting this disease, and it makes sex like a dangerous and scary thing yeah. as opposed to let's keep you as sexually healthy as possible right you know, sexual health and reproductive health it's it's a right it's a it's a a way of existing and not. You've got to avoid that. That's that's horrible. That's, you know, it's like it's dirty or something that you would catch something from.
1: Right. Um, you you got to understand that you might be talking to people who already have an STD or these things that you're talking to them about like. Mm-hmm. And so how would you talk to that person? It's different from you you can't say, "Oh, you got to avoid it because they already have it," you know? So <laughs> what do they do now? <laughs> and it's
2: not something you've done wrong. It's Exactly. Like, The other thing that it strikes me when you talk is that uh, so there's a cohort of women living with HIV who have had children and they've aged up, but there's also a group of women like yourself, and not just women, but their children who are living with HIV. Um, It's called the Pediatric HIV/AIDS Cohort Study. Facts from NIH. And they're now, when I left NIH, they were putting together a project that let them learn more about the younger women who are of reproductive age, who are born born with HIV, and recognizing that they may think entirely differently than their generation of mothers. Mm -hmm. And they may, the word function is not what I want to say, but behave differently, go through their daily lives differently. And it's important to understand their sexualization, how they grow into it, how they define themselves, how they think about this. Because we're not the w- women we the studies were done on done with before are like 40s, 50s, right? And it, this is a whole other group. And you, the education, the information, the way you function, how you get brought into these discussions, how you bring yourselves to these discussions not even wait for someone to invite you, but are part of. The world that we live in now, and we need to better understand that to do better, like for healthcare. And, you know, when you switched over to adult care, you said you dropped out for a bit. But what is that about? And how do we make sure how do we set up systems so that. People feel like they can continue and how not how we set up systems, but how do we work with people who need systems so that they're set up appropriately to meet their needs? You know, right. I think i wasn't right. saying it the right way, but.
1: Uh, th- that's interesting. Uh, that's my first time hearing about that cohort. I'm glad that you guys have that, uh, uh, that you guys are working on. We actually had a a session that we did for National Women and Girls HIV and AIDS Day, the Well Project. Uh-huh. Um, and it was called As We See It. Um, and it was me and another woman who was born HIV positive, who uh, hosted it. And it was a panel of other ladies who were born positive. And we talked about, you know, what you just mentioned. A lot of those things. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That is like, it's definitely we're long-term survivors, and but the way that we view things is different from some of the older um, mm-hmm. women who are in their 40s or 50s. You know, the, there's a generation gap in, in, in. Yep. The, yeah, and so we we discussed that in the meeting. And yeah, That's some cool. of the stuff you just sorry. said, we we talked about and brought those issues up as well.
2: Um, one of the, oh, sorry, I don't want to interrupt. Sorry. Go ahead. No, one of the coolest meetings I was at was in Seattle, the Gates Foundation was small and it was, um, Dawn was there. I'm trying to think if Jenna was there. I can't remember, but um, they brought in young women and it was young women from the US and internationally. And, you know, they, there was a meeting that was set up and there was like um, uh, the two organizations, part the Well Project and, and another organization that put this meeting together and it was a chance, you know, there were, the Ambassador Burks was there at the time and it was just a really interesting opportunity. But at one point there was a session set up and the younger women from both the U S and internationally got together and they're like, okay, you guys set this up like this. We don't want this to happen this way. We're going to give you something that we think you need to hear and do. So basically they took over the meeting and were able, they made sure that their voices were heard because, you know, us old heads had set up something that was one way. And they're like, this is not how this ought to function. (laughs) I'm like, well, and it was amazing and excellent. They, during lunch, time they sorted out how they wanted it delivered and dealt with it was it was amazing it was very very good
1: awesome that's the perfect segue into the last question <laughs> um so you know you were treating women living with HIV before art and you know the 076 study that you know proved U equals you Um, can you describe the shift that you saw in women when you were able to counsel them about this life-changing treatment? And, um, you know, is there a difference in how you, you know, would counsel women now um, who's interested in having a baby as opposed to before art?
2: Yeah, it was, um, it was like, how do I describe it? there was almost like there was shame to being pregnant before um in this sort of how could you do this kind of way that they were getting from you know other people who knew they were living with hiv other clinicians um you know people you know suppose you're going to your to your substance abuse treatment or management center and you are pregnant they know you have hiv And there was judgment and it was almost like people were embarrassed to be pregnant. And once they knew they could do this, as in have a baby and the baby could live without HIV, or if a baby was born living with HIV, there was guilt and embarrassment that went with it, like tremendous guilt. And to see that start to come away as women began to better understand whether they got the information from their clinicians or got it out in the world because word spread pretty quickly. You know, you would have women say, I want a C-section da da, da 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 and you're like, well, you don't really need one because your viral load is undetectable Detectable. and you'd have to explain it. And they're like, oh, OK. You know, so there was a sense of like um, that you could own this and you could find joy in it for mm-hmm. many of the women. It wasn't a fearful time as much with this. You've got to be afraid, and is my baby okay? And you know, six weeks later, is my baby okay? Kind of thing. So it was really, or, or three months. There were at the beginning, it took three months, um, and they recommended up to six months to, to figure out if the baby was really not living, not born with HIV, or didn't acquire it um, at birth, and um, just to see that that the guilt start to strip away. And also a bit of defiance when someone was trying to lay the guilt on women. Right? They're like, no, 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 no. I know if I do this, this and this, I can have a baby without HIV. So you need to take a step back and not tell me what to do.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. So that was a, like exciting, awesome. Almost like you'd have to look back at it and go, yeah, this is what was happening. So it was really kind of cool.
1: Um, it's funny that you say that because that. Uh, you know sharing a little bit more about my story I know that guilt weighed heavy on uh, my my biological mom um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and she kind of even spiraled into a more um, like bad place uh, Mm -hmm. after she had me and then just the the judgment she got from my family like my grandma and everyone like Mm -hmm. you know like it made her addiction even worse and so you know I'm glad I'm super glad that I got to interview you today oh it's so great to meet you (laughs) and that you uh highlighted all these things like that's kind of why I chose you because I wanted this conversation to be had for that reason because I think still even today like it's like you said it's you know it's it's not as bad as it was but I still think that you know, people still hold these, these judgments and these biases and stuff. So this was a very important conversation that needed to be had. And thank you for uh, sharing everything you shared. And I don't know, do you have any final thoughts or anything? Any last things you want to say to the people? <laughs> to the people. Um, one, you're
2: amazing and thoughtful. And thank you. And the questions you put together are Yeah, exactly what we need to think about and be willing to talk about. Um, We're in a really different place than we were at the beginning of the epidemic and we have to be happy about that. You know, we are, I mean, I would not degrade it and say that it's as simple as, oh, it's like having diabetes. No, I mean, it's an issue, but it's an issue that you can manage. And I think we have to respect that people living with HIV they can manage it with the choices they make and we have to let them make the choices, right. not let them. We have to recognize that they have the right to make the choices. You know, you have the right to have a child. You have a right to take medicine. You have a right to make a decision about how you wanna manage this. And it's not my job to tell you how to manage it. It's my job to give you information that lets you make the best decisions possible. Um, and that we have to recognize that women have choices And get to make those choices that we aren't here to make choices for women, that women get to make the choices they want to make about being healthy, whether it's prevention, whether it's, and it shouldn't just, not just women, but women and young men as well, or, you know, women and men. And Mm -hmm. young men, people need to have these conversations with them as, as they're living with HIV as well. But yeah, it's not my job to tell you how to do something, it's my job to make sure you have the information to make a decision.
1: Right. Well, thank you so much, Miss Gina Brown um, for thank the opportunity you. and uh, yeah, that's it. I don't, unless you have any more questions for me, I don't have, uh, we can wrap it up.
2: <laughs> I'm excited to, uh, to have had the chance to actually meet and talk with you, um, you too. and just, I mean, you're thoughtful and just keep being this thoughtful and keep spreading information to the folks that you get to work with as well, to the next generations of people coming along.
1: Thank you. All right. You're not old, by the way. I, I, feel, I feel like it. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Thank you. Okay, bye, guys. Thank you for listening to the Well Projects Leadership Exchange Podcast. You can watch and listen to more episodes on our website, thewellproject.org exchange. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on social media.